1: are in the psalms you all will read the scripture with me okay so let us read this responsively. please lord don't punish me when you are angry don't discipline me when you are furious have mercy on me lord because i'm weak heal me lord because my bones are shaking my whole body is completely frozen but lord how long will this last Come back to me, Lord, deliver me, save me for the sake of your faithful love. No one is going to praise you when they're dead. Who gives you thanks from the grave? I'm worn out from my anguish and complaint. Every night I drench my bed with tears. I soak my couch all the way through. My vision fails because of my sadness. My foresight is weak because of my distress. Get away from me, all you evildoers, because the Lord has heard me crying. The Lord has listened to my request. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and completely terrified. They will be defeated and ashamed instantly. The word of God for us, the people of God this morning. Thanks be to God. Could you get the light for me?
0: I think we've lost our capacity to hold pain, I think, and discomfort even discomfort. I mean I think I think it's a couple of things. I think that we live in a culture that tells us that being vulnerable and being tender is being weak. And weakness is something that collectively we abhor. You know, we can't we have no tolerance for weakness. We're we're I mean, to say we're sickened by weakness. And so culturally, I think there's this pushback to be strong, to put on your game face. And so I think culturally the message is weakness is, and I don't even think disgusting is too strong of a word in our culture. And so I think there's this cultural piece, but I also think that part and parcel of that is our unwillingness or our inability sometimes to hold space for pain and discomfort. And that's one of the things that I think faith communities, where they miss the mark sometimes, because I think often faith communities always perceive it as an unwillingness to be in the dark and unwillingness to feel pain and unwillingness to feel discomfort. But I would argue that it's not always an, an, an unwillingness, it's sometimes the inability. I don't know how. And you keep asking me to do this, but I physically, spiritually, emotionally, physiologically don't know how to sit in that. And I think that is, again, also born of our culture, and I see it when I interview parents who spend their whole lives about three feet ahead of their children, softening everything down, making sure everything is okay. Um, You know, Pema Chodron, who is an American Buddhist nun, who I I love her work, She, she defines compassion as knowing our darkness well enough that we can sit in the dark with others and she says that compassion is not a relationship between the wounded and the healed, but a relationship of equals. And I think that's really powerful because as a parent, I think one of the ways we start to change culture is when my kids are struggling, it's not my instinct, I'm not hardwired to let them struggle and sit in the dark and sit with them. I'm hardwired, I think, to flip on the lights. And so to me, we start teaching compassion and teaching the ability to hold space for pain and discomfort by sitting with our kids in the dark, rather than fixing them, letting them feel their way through. But I think we, and I think, so I think when faith communities say, why aren't you willing to feel the pain? I think we have to go back even further and say, how can I help you learn how? How can I teach you how to hold space for this? And I think it's even a hardwiring issue. I think that's why we see you know, a lot in my research, I talk about us being the most addicted, medicated, obese and in debt and busiest adult cohort in human history. I think numbing is one way universally that we have learned to manage discomfort. I don't think you can talk about individual and collective holding a vulnerability without talking about shame. Even in grief, people say don't wallow. And so the shame, you know, know, the shame is this, like, universal human emotion that we all experience that tells us that we're not good enough and that we're not worthy of love and belonging, things that we're hardwired to experience. You know, where there's no love, where there's no belonging, there's suffering always. And so shame is this extremely effective emotion that says you're not good enough. And so one of the things, if we wanna help people learn how to embrace vulnerability. We cannot do that without visiting shame and talking to people about what are the messages and expectations about being vulnerable that are stopping you. You know, for me, you know, I'm fifth generation Texan, very German-American. There were just very unspoken messages in my family growing up. You know, we don't get sick, we don't miss work. You know, for me, to learn how to be vulnerable, which was not my natural way of being, I had to first address the gremlins you know, the shame messages that said, vulnerable people are weak, they're indulgent, they're lazy, they are, you know. And so once I understood those messages and where they came from, I could decide, make a conscious choice to say, I'm not buying into it. So I think the way we start, and this is another thing that we can't stand in our culture. We make change by addressing first what's getting in the way. You know what are the messages and expectations that get in the way? When you look at men, do a lot of work with men, and there was a great study that came out a couple years ago that talked about what are, what are the qualities that are most important in our culture, the U.S., for men to be considered masculine. And I think number one, two, and three were primacy of work. Nothing comes before work, not family, not partners, not faith, nothing becomes before work. Number two was emotional stoicism. Show no no emotion at all. And number three was power over women. You know, and so, and then you look at what the top three for what are the most important norms for femininity in our culture, thin, nice, and quiet. And so you have to really address some pretty serious cultural messages and expectations before people are gonna buy in and say, I'll give being tender a chance.
1: Would you pray with me? God, this morning we wanna give um, being tender a chance. And so whatever uh, preconceptions we come to this place with about that, about uh, sharing our weaknesses, sharing where we struggle, sharing, God forbid, broken relationships or debt up to our ears, We know that you're willing to hear those things and make us a faith community that is willing to hear those things as well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I remember sitting in church history class. Um, We were required to take um, church history in our first year of seminary, and it felt like a large part of that class was just kind of talking about all the heretics, that there were throughout history. And so it seems like it was about the the Christians who had gone before, who had lobbied or encouraged ways of belief or particular doctrines that were eventually shut down by the church later. (laughs) One of those heretics that I learned about was named Marcion. I have this soft spot in my heart for Marcion. He lived in the 2nd century, and Marcion lobbied for us to get rid of the Old Testament entirely. Just just get rid of it. He had read it. He didn't like what he saw in it. There were stories of people um, who were vicious and violent and promiscuous and adulterous and faithless and addicted to money and greed. And Marcion had read what God did to those people who were vicious and violent and promiscuous. And Marcion said, well, we don't need this. Just get rid of it all, all we need for salvation are the gospel stories, the ones about Jesus' life, death, and birth, right? And, and resurrection and all, all we need to have for salvation, Marcion said, are those letters afterwards, the letters that taught us how to love and live like Jesus did, how to live in community with one another from Genesis to Malachi, just like lop all of that off. We don't need that in order to know who God is. And so when I sat in class in my first year of divinity school, I was one of those people, maybe that you have been too, who have struggled with Old Testament stories where there was viciousness and violence and promiscuousness and adultery and faithlessness, and I had struggled with these stories. And so I remember when I sat in that class and they talked about this heretic, and I like pull out my pen and I just put a little star by his name. Like, I'm going I'm to remember you, and um, you... You may be onto something here. I mean, I don't know, I'll I'll stick out the rest of the class. Except in the same semester, I was also required to take a class called Introduction to the Old Testament (laughs) with a professor named Ellen Davis. Ellen Davis is is not someone who would have put a star by Marcion's name. Um, She refused to lop off the Old Testament. Instead, she taught us to love it. That's what she was there for. Dr. Davis wrote a book, Getting Involved with God, Rediscovering the Old Testament. And in this book, Dr. Davis says that Christians normally do one of two things where the Old Testament is concerned. She says that Christians either try to pull a Marcion and pretend that the Old Testament isn't there. They would really get kind of mad if we actually cut it out of the Bible because then that would sound, that. that but they act as if it's not there. That's right. <laughs> um, or uh, Christians do something else. Uh, they they begin to pick at places in the Bible that may be a little bit easier to take. So they you know graze over Genesis a little bit, and and they um, do a little grazing and in in those passages people think might have involved Jesus or might have been about Jesus, you know. Do a little grazing in that one non-depressing verse of Jeremiah that seems to be on every graduation gift ever, for I know the plans I have for you, says the right? So we just do that little grazing, and we pick and choose what we like and what we don't like, and we pretend that the rest isn't there, and uh, neither of these are satisfactory to Ellen Davis. The grazing and the seeking to avoid it altogether robs us of getting to know God, who, the God who rises up from the pages of the Old Testament, the God who has been and always will be deeply involved in our incredibly broken lives. And so in this book, Dr. Davis sort of takes us by the hand and walks us more fully into this intimate relationship with God. Speaking of intimacy... Have you all seen the show Married at First Sight? Okay, some of you have, all right, good. So it like showed up on my Netflix queue. It's a show where three couples meet for the first time at the altar. They get married and then they go and there's this eight week experiment to see are they going to stay married or get divorced after eight weeks. I feel like I just did the exact promo I've heard, as, like I've seen, it, I've seen it advertised. I may or may not have binged this a little bit. Uh, <laughs> strictly research. So the couples on this show, the couples on this show work with a counselor and a pastor throughout this eight week experiment. And the thing that these advisors say to the couples over and over again is that the foundation to an intimate relationship is communication. I mean, we all know that. The foundation to an intimate relationship is being able to talk to one another and being able to hear one another. And it's not based on reality shows. It, it's, it, we know it to be true. Knowing how to talk to one another is kind of the bread and butter of relationships that thrive. And Dr. Davis seemed to agree because the first step in getting to know God more deeply, she says, more intimately, is not, it's not about faith. It's not about trust. It doesn't start with the creation story. It doesn't start with the law. It doesn't start with the prophets. She says it begins in the Psalms. Apparently, the first step in coming to know the God who is deeply and irrevocably involved with us is found tucked in the middle of the Old Testament. The foundation to an intimate relationship with God is how we speak to God. And the Psalms teach us how to do that. They teach us how to engage in conversation with God. Several years ago, there were a couple of 20-somethings and they were living in New York City. Their names were Liz and Bill and every day of the week, 12 hours a day, Liz and Bill would stand on a street corner and hold up a cardboard sign that said, talk to me. And at first, people were totally skeptical. So, like, are you trying to make money on this from us? Is this one of those TV shows where somebody's gonna jump out and tell me, gotcha? Uh, But but eventually, people realized that Liz and Bill really meant what they said when they said, talk to me. And so a lot of people took them up on it. They started talking about their bad breakups and about losing jobs and they talked about their dreams and their beliefs and, and their family and they talked about light things and heavy things And they talked because someone with a sign just said they would listen. That's all. And the Psalms, the Psalms for us, are our cardboard sign from God that say, Talk to me. God is saying, Tell me something. Please tell me anything, really just anything about your life. Light things, heavy things. Cry out in grief to me. Scream your doubts to me. Spill your guts to me. If you're furious, I'm here. Just talk to me. And as we read in the Psalms, we realized that God really is open to hearing all sorts of things from us. That we actually believe this audacious claim that God cares when we're in pain and we're, when we're experiencing joy too. Listen to the words of Psalm 6 again. Please, Lord, don't punish me when you're angry. Don't discipline me when you're furious. Have mercy on me, God, because I'm frail. Heal me, Lord, because my bones are shaking in terror. Save me for the sake of your faithful love. No one is going to praise you when they're dead, God. Who gives you thanks from the grave? Heal me, have mercy on me, save me. I'm so broken that my bones are actually shaking. Who is going to praise you when they're dead? You can almost hear the psalmist say, God, for the love of God, do your job. Or listen to these words from Psalm 58, one of what we call the cursing psalms. Break their teeth in their mouth, God. Let them be like the snail that walks, that melts away, like a stillborn child that never sees the sun. And it makes it makes me sick to even read that out loud. Whoa, these are powerful words, words that we don't even think we're allowed to mutter under our own breaths, words that I don't feel very comfortable speaking out loud here, But in finding these words, somehow in our sacred text, we see that somehow we have been given permission. We've somehow been encouraged and invited to speak these words to God. Dr. Davis says that the Psalms are the first amendment of the faithful. They guarantee us complete freedom of speech before God. And they give us a little window into how we exercise our freedom with one another too. So if you're not sure how to begin talking to God or to one another, start with the Psalms. The Psalms are our script. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, used to read five Psalms a day because that meant that when there were 150 of them, he could get through them in one month and then he could start all over again. Saints throughout the centuries have used these Psalms in order to engage in conversation with the creator of the cosmos and to learn how to translate that conversation into the first person where they live and where they work and where they play. And somehow through the script in the Psalms, the distance between us and God begins to shrink. And, And if we dare to allow it to break us down and to break us open, we will find that the distance between us and our neighbor begins to shrink too. There is this rhythm, this formula to each psalm that is meant to help create change in us. When we offer psalms of praise and thanksgiving, we do it not because our lives are perfect, we have it all figured out, but because the psalms teach us how to see the world as God sees it, how to give thanks for the small things, how to give thanks in all things. When we offer psalms of lament or despair, like we read this morning, you'll notice that these psalms always move from petition to complaint to praise. It's as if speaking truthfully and honestly and vulnerably releases this sort of iceberg of pain within us and helps us to inch our way toward healing. Or when we offer the cursing psalms, notice that the psalmist never says that we are going to do the work of exacting revenge on people we are furious with. The psalms call on, God to do that and these words are not open for us to speak to any other person but God and then when the psalmist's words don't apply to us directly at all when we ourselves are not cursing or lamenting or really even praising because we're just in the mundanity of life they remind us to look around us to notice the people around who are lamenting people who are calling out and cursing, people who are in the greatest moments of their life even. Friends, the Psalms are always giving us, always giving us permission to speak. The Psalms are God's cardboard sign that reads, talk to me. And that's the joy of Christian community because when it is a heart problem, or a mental health problem or a gun problem or God forbid we say all of those problems, we Christians gather this first Sunday of Lent and we listen and we speak to God and we listen and we speak to one another to confess our sins before God and one another to share our anger and our doubts and our fears and our shame and our failures to be the people that God has created us to be to hold up signs to one another that, that say, Talk to me. Not just about God, but about how you experience God, how you undergo God. In your own words, in your own point of view, tell me, tell me how you know God. Because it might just give me a window into my own story. To give us a window into our own story this morning, I would love to invite up someone who's gonna share his story with us. Would Sean please come forward? I'm gonna pull you up a chair, because we're gonna, let's listen to him. Here, have a seat, Thank you. Sean. Welcome, Sean, everybody say hi, Sean. Hi. Oh, yes, there is. Mm-hmm.
2: Is this, this good? Okay, so thank you, thank you for the introduction. Um, This is the second time I'm testifying in front of Kingstown. The first time was about why I give to Kingstown. And uh, funny story behind that, when Michelle first asked me, my first thought literally was, how much more could I donate to not have to talk? (laughs) (laughs) That was my literal first thought. And my second thought was, No, Sean, you cannot try to bribe your pastor. That's not okay. (laughs) I don't know if it would work or not, but it's not even okay to try. Um, But I did it anyway, and I'm glad. Um, But I wanted you to know that I was called, and my first thought was no. No. I I don't want to answer that call. Um, But I did, and I'm glad. the the other thing I want to say before you get going is, for those of you who follow us on Facebook, uh, Michelle apparently loves the picture of me driving the boat. I really do. <laughs> I do. I don't own a boat. <laughs> <laughs> we rented that boat, and I have mixed feelings. I, I like that picture, too, but I feel a little bit like a poser because we don't actually own a boat. <laughs> um, so, you know, but thank you. It is a good picture. Um... <laughs> Michelle asked me to be vulnerable, and I had a whole thing prepared, and I was going to give that. Uh, The first time I gave a testimony, I wrote it all out word for word, and I said it, and I timed myself. The first time I did it, it took four minutes and two seconds. (laughs) She gave me three to five minutes, so I knew I had a little bit more time to work on the transitions, and so I got up to four minutes and seven seconds, and then when I came up here and talked, I talked about something different, but I wrote it all out, and That was sort of good practice. Um, And after I gave the talk, several people gave me a lot of good feedback. They said that was great, it was inspirational, um, and I appreciated that. I'm being vulnerable now by saying, that's what I wanted. I didn't actually want you to give more money to the church. I wanted to stand up front and have people say, wow, that was great, good job, Hmm. that I was being selfish. Now hopefully people did give more money, that was what (laughs) Michelle wanted. Like, Kingstown needs to keep going and it needs all of our support, but um, I I originally had something more conventional, I've been through therapy, I can do this, I can stand up and I I had this whole thing rehearsed. Um, But that didn't feel real to me. Um, Michelle likes the word vulnerability and that's what we're talking about here. Uh, Jeff likes the word real. I kind of agree with him, that, that to me, um, between where I was and vulnerability, halfway there is sort of real. Mm-hmm. So um, what I'm focused on right now is I'm going to try and do both things by peeling back the veneer a little bit, that um, both of my parents are successful professionals. And I was raised from a very early age to have professional face and I can do that, I know that it's comfortable to me and it's even useful. Like you, like you don't necessarily want to know all these things about someone else's life. Um, I guess the point that I wanna get across is that this is hard. I personally want to hear other people's testimony too and I want to encourage you that you can do it too and that it's okay if it's hard, If it's, it's okay if you don't answer the call the first time it happens, keep it in mind, and just continue this process with us. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Sean. You're welcome. Thanks. I'm thankful for Sean, and uh, as he's beginning to get more comfortable with being real, and uh, I ask that you'll go to, um, to God in prayer with me as we um, ask God to make us more comfortable as well. God, break us open so that we um, will talk to you. Make us less consumed with our own lives so that we'll talk to you. Open our ears and our hearts to listen to to the folks around us who are hurting and in need um, of an ear for someone to say, hey, listen, I'm here to say whatever you want. Say whatever you want. God, we confess for the ways that we have used the opportunity to talk to others, um, to hurt people, nor to to make them to make ourselves feel better, to make ourselves feel like our lives are more together as we listen to those lives that aren't so together. As Brene Brown said, compassion is not having your life together and inviting someone who needs healing to speak, but but compassion is from equal ground where we all find within ourselves those places that are poor, those places in our, in our souls that are impoverished. It is in moments when our souls are impoverished and we don't know what to say, though, that you you teach us how to pray, God. And you taught us to pray like your son,
0: At the table of the Lord, there is peace at the table of the